And here we stand in the power of Christ, and uh, praise be to God for that. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to take it now and open it up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, that's where we're going to be today, and uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say two things before we get into today's message. The first is that it's been a joy all day long to celebrate all the baptisms that we've been able to um, really enjoy together, and uh, it is wonderful to see so many people publicly expressing their faith in Jesus Christ. And so some of you, as you've seen these baptisms happen, there may be something inside of you where you feel a little bit of a nudge saying, you know what, the Lord is calling me to be baptized. Um, Maybe you sense the Lord calling you to learn more about baptism. If that's you, I just want to invite you to join us next Sunday, August 7th, at our baptism class. It really is a uh, a one-time class. It's 30 to 40 minutes long. We teach you about the basics of baptism, um, really what baptism is all about, why we do it, who it's for, um, and we really look at a biblical basis for um, the, the practice of baptism. So if you sense that the Lord is nudging you to take that step, like maybe you've been a Christian uh, for some time, but you haven't yet publicly displayed that through baptism, that would be awesome. We'd love to have you in the class. Maybe you're not quite sure you want to be baptized yet, and you have some questions and things that you want to discuss or learn about. I really encourage you, go to that class. It's a perfect place to ask and learn uh, what the Bible has to say. And I also just want to say, for those of you in the room who um, have, are parents of younger children, if your kids are asking you about baptism or interested in, in baptism, this is a, a great next step to take them to uh, start the conversation and to start to engage in that talk with them. So if you want to attend, what we need you to do is to register online. So if you just go to ubcbeavercreek.com, click on our events page, and then under events, you'll see the link for the baptism class. You can just enter your information and register there. And uh, I hope that if the Lord is nudging you to take that step, I hope that you will. It'll be exciting for you and exciting for our church. So that's the first thing I want to say before the sermon. The second thing I want to say is really just reiterating what's already been said, and that is I want to welcome every new face that's in the room today. When I look around the room at each service, I see faces that I've never seen before. I know some of you, this may be your first time here. It may be your first time here in a long time. Um, It might be your first time in church ever. you know, I, maybe some people are listening online. Maybe, maybe you're here with Builders for Christ. You know, every new face in the room, I want you to just know God loves you and we're glad that you're here. And we are um, grateful that you have chosen to be with us this morning. So if you're new with us, uh, it will be helpful for you to know that we are teaching straight through the New Testament book of Acts uh, on our Sunday morning worship services. Um, this is week 25 in our study through the book of Acts, so we've covered a lot of ground so far, um, but we're not even halfway through yet. You know, there's 28 chapters, and today we're going to be going into chapter 12. Um, we're going to work our way all the way through chapter 12 from verse 1 through verse 25, so I'm going to have to hustle through that, uh, so hang tight. As I'm not going to share a whole bunch of illustrations or stories. We're just going to get right into the teaching of God's Word, and then I'm going to bring it home with a couple application points for us at the end. One, for those of you guys who may be here today and would say, I'm not yet following Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, one application point will be for you. Uh, the second application point will be for those who are indeed Christians, and um, you know, we have something we need to glean from the Word of God here as well. But both of those application points are really going to tie into the big idea of this text, and the big idea of this text is this. It's this. There is nothing 
that can stop the purposes of God. Guys, there's nothing that can stop the purposes of God. That's the straightforward point of this passage as we see God's interactions with two main characters, Peter and a man named Herod. And so let's get into chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and really see what the Lord has to say here. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. I like that it starts out by saying about that time. Because we have to really ask the question, what, what time is it referring to? Well, it's the time that was referenced at the end of chapter 11 where we left off last week when James Reisner was preaching, Barnabas, Saul, all of that that was going on then. See, there's always a backstory leading up to our text. Leading up to chapter 12, several important things have happened. The first one in Acts chapter 1 was that Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come on them, and when the Holy Spirit came on them, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, that promise was kept. The Holy Spirit came on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And then from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 11, it really is the playing out of Jesus' commission for his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So that's what we've seen happen. And, and when we ended in chapter 11, what we saw was that the gospel had made its way all the way to a place called Antioch in Syria. That, that's about 300 miles away from Jerusalem. So the gospel had made its way to the Gentiles that were in Antioch of Syria. Barnabas and Saul of Tarsus were there preaching the gospel for about a year, teaching the people the word of God. During that time, it was prophesied that a um, famine would come upon the land. And here's what you got to understand. The people there understood that the Christians down in Jerusalem had been persecuted, that the apostles that were there had really been uh, attacked by the, by the Jews and the Roman leaders that were down near um, Jerusalem. And so when a famine came, they knew that things were going to get even harder for the church down in Jerusalem. So these new believers in Antioch of Syria took up a love offering and they collected the money and they gave it to Barnabas and said, take it and deliver it down to the, um, the believers down in Jerusalem. Um, now, that's where we left off. That was probably around 43 AD or so, um, about 10, or 10 to 13 years after the resurrection of Christ. So kind of just shows you like we've kind of hustled through 11 chapters of scripture in our study through the book of Acts, but that, those are events that occurred over a 10 to 13 year span of history. So some time has passed by here, but that's the time that's being referenced in um, in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12 that Herod was violent toward the church. Um, I don't want you to be confused about Herod. Um, Herod is less like a name and more like a title. When we think of Caesar, we know it's a title. There were many Caesars. Same way with Herod. There were many Herods. So when you read in the early um, writings of the Gospels, and we read that Herod wanted to put the Christ child to death. So he had all the two-year-olds, uh, the Jewish children, you know, put to death. That was Herod the Great. You read on in the Gospels and you read that there was a man named Herod who put John the Baptist to death. Uh, that was Herod Antipas. 
when we read here in Luke, um, there's a Luke chapter 12 there, excuse me, Acts chapter 12, there is a man named Herod Agrippa. He's actually Herod Agrippa I because he died in 44 AD. And then when we keep reading in the book of Acts and we get to Acts chapter 25 and 26, we'll meet another Herod Agrippa who is actually Herod Agrippa II. And so when we look at our text today, we're talking about Herod Agrippa I. Um, history shows us one important thing about Herod Agrippa I that we, it, it helps us understand the passage here. Herod Agrippa I was very um, sympathetic uh, for the purposes and the will of the Jewish people. His mother had become a Jew. Um, Josephus, the early church historian, wrote about Agrippa and said that Agrippa was a strict adherent to Jewish law and customs. Um, we also have to remember that Agrippa was a king, right? So he was a politician, and you want to keep your people kind of in favor with you. So he was ruling an area that was full of Jews, and so he often would cater his views and his decisions toward the will of the people. What do we know about the Jews? The Jews re rejected Jesus as Messiah for the most part. Um, most of them had violent hatred against the Christian church of the first century. And so Herod Agrippa also became violent toward the Christian church during this time. We get more evidence about that when we look at verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2 says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, which James is this? Because there's lots of James, Jameses in the Bible. If you think about when Jesus first came and called his first disciples... He, he called James and his brother John and said, come follow me. These two brothers were James and John, the sons of a man named Zebedee. Later in scripture, Jesus refers to these two brothers, James and John, as uh, the sons of thunder, right? Which I've said it before, I'll say it again. I still think it would be a, a great name for a rock band. Somebody should do that. Thank you for one laugh. I appreciate all of you. All right. Um, where was I going with that? I lose my train of thought so quickly. Okay, John, where, what James are we talking about? So, you know how as Jesus went on in his ministry, you know, he had his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Well, that is the James that's being referenced here. Um, James was one of the closest followers of Jesus, obviously one of the leaders of the church in his day while he was alive, and Herod put him to death, all right? Herod put him to death. Now, that gained favor with the Jews. Um, look what it says in verse 3. It says in verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. Uh, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Agrippa realized, hey, if I can get one of the leaders put to death, just imagine what's going to happen if I get the leader put to death. What if I get Peter arrested and put to death? He knew that he would gain all sorts of favor with the Jews at that point. So he sends four squads to go arrest Peter. A, a squad was a band of four soldiers. Um, two of, they, they basically worked on 24-hour shifts. Uh, or excuse me, they worked on six-hour shifts. So over the course of 24 hours, each of the four squads could rotate, guarding the prisoner. A squad would work like this. Two of the four men would be nearby the prisoner, right at his side. The other two would guard the door or the entryway, wherever they were. And that was the purpose of a squad. Well, 
Herod sends four squads, 16 guys to go arrest one guy, which we might think is a little bit overkill until we remember what happened in Acts chapter 5. Remember that? Where all of a sudden Peter's arrested and all of a sudden, miraculously, he escapes from prison. So, you know, Herod's got his political agenda here and he's not going to let anything get in the way. So he sends a four squads to go arrest Peter and guard him heavily. And it says that he did this during the time of unleavened bread and the Passover. So what that means is that in the Jewish culture, their calendar revolved around seven festivals. The first one was Passover. The second one was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Part of the rules of the Passover was that while the Passover was going on, you weren't allowed to execute anybody, which is part of what made Jesus's mistrial and execution such a big deal because it occurred during Passover. It was illegal. Nevertheless, here we have uh, Herod Agrippa not wanting to kill anyone over Passover. He didn't want to go against Jewish custom that way. But in between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he wanted to bring Peter out, put him on trial in front of everybody, and hopefully execute him. Now, this was a, a very strategic political move, because what do we know about the festival season in Jerusalem? It wasn't just the Jews in Jerusalem that participated. Jews from all around the regions came together, and they would all be in town for these festivals. And so Agrippa knows that, here we go, I've got this opportunity with Jews that are in town from around the world where I can gain their favor by putting to death one of the, another one of the Christian leaders, and it won't just impact me and my kind of leadership right here around Jerusalem, but it'll have political influence, um, you know, spanning even to regions far away. So with this political power and motivation in mind, he has Peter arrested and intends to put him under a public trial and execution. So you can see what the church does about this in verse 5. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Right? So this, we understand what's going on here. They had just lost James. They don't also want to lose Peter now. So they're praying for Peter. They love him. They care for him. So they're praying. It says in verse 6, Now, um, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries before the door uh, were guarding the prison. So what struck me when I read this is this is the night before Peter's trial and likely execution. He's in prison and what's he doing? He's taking a snooze, you know what I mean? He's just, he's just sleeping, which to me, how could he do that? Right? Like, how could he, here's how he could do that. He could only do that because he apparently had a deep trust in his God. He trusted his God's sovereign plan. Now, there's a lot of reasons why I think he had a deeper trust in God than maybe we understand at face value from this text. And maybe if we have time, I'd get into that a little bit later. But what, what it reminds me of here, this, this wonderful piece that Peter has. It reminds me of a verse that I was taught when I was in Sunday school as a kid. It's Isaiah 26, verse 3, which says this, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. He trusts in you. When we, this is a verse that I, like, if you're here today and you are going through fear, anxiety, worry, um, you just find yourself anxious and 
not at rest, not able, not able to be at peace. My prayer is that you will, that the Lord will allow you, work in your heart today to be able to help you trust in him and find the peace that comes with that. And we'll talk more about that at the application at the end. But something like that was going on with Peter here because he was totally at peace with the Lord. Agrippa, on the other hand, was very restless and uh, taking all these, going to great lengths to make sure Peter stayed locked in. You know, he's got two guards at his side, two guards at the door, two chains holding him down, right? There's, he wanted to make sure that there's no earthly way that Peter's getting out. But praise be to God, our God is not bound by earthly ways, right? Our God can make a heavenly way where there doesn't seem to be any sort of earthly way. And that's what he does. In here in verse 7, he starts to move in really uh, heavenly ways. It says in verse 7, it says, Behold, um, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. I have to say, I love it when it uh, says that the angel of the Lord said to Peter, Get up quickly. Um, when Phil and I were growing up in our house in Michigan, my, it would be Saturday, you know, uh, you'd think you'd get to sleep in on Saturday, and uh, Saturday would roll around, and my dad would come into our room bright and early in the morning, like 10 a.m. or so, and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, my dad had this thing that he would always say. He would look at me and Phil, and he would say, hey, boys, get up. It's time to motivate. And I remember being so bothered by that as a kid, like, oh, I'm about to motivate something, like, so I have to go down here. And I would get real mad at my dad, not knowing that apparently these are the types of things that angels of the Lord say to people, right? So, uh, dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry for all those years. I did not recognize you as an angel of the Lord. But anyways, this is the type of stuff that, that's going on here. Peter is abruptly um, woken up. Um, but the angel says to him, you know, uh, get up quickly. Um, and in order to get Peter up quickly, what does it say that the, that the angel of the Lord had to do? It had to strike him on the side, which seems like maybe an insignificant detail, but take note of that because we're going to come back to it again at the end. But Peter must have been a pretty hard sleeper, you know? You know, we have light sleepers and hard sleepers in the world. Uh, you know, light sleepers, like they're just up at every little thing, waking up their spouse. Did you hear that? No, there's... I feel like someone's looking at me, right? You just wake up, right? Hard sleepers, they're, they're out. You can turn the light on. You can call their name. You can, you know, put an air horn in their face. And they're not waking up, you know? There's hard sleeping. This is kind of like Peter, right? He must have been this way because an angel showed up in the room. He didn't know that there was somebody looking at him. A light shone, a heavenly light. That must, I'm assuming that was pretty bright. Didn't wake him up, right? He, he just had to get smacked in the side to, woke, to get woken up. So that's what's going on. So the angel wakes up Peter. The Lord causes his chains to fall off. And here's what happens next. Look at verse eight. Verse eight uh, says that, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. All right, remember, Peter already had one vision in chapter 10 of the book of Acts when, before he went to see Cornelius. So kind of makes sense that Peter might have thought that that's what was happening again because you got bright lights and angels and chains miraculously falling off without a key, you know, stuff like that. So this unbelievable dreamlike experience is happening 
And it keeps on going. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 um, says that when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along the street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, what I want you to see right here is that God is accomplishing his purposes. He is removing earthly obstacles that are getting in the way of him accomplishing his purposes. Do you see how God is removing obstacles? He's removing people obstacles, right? He's got two guards that are staying asleep, two other guards at the door that aren't noticing what's going on. He's removing physical obstacles. Chains are being you know, released. Doors are being opened. Why? Because God has a purpose to get his gospel to the ends of the earth, and God has purposed to have Peter be part of the plan for now. So there's nothing that man can do to get in the way of God's purposes. When God wants to get something done, he's going to touch the right people, remove the necessary chains, and open the right doors. He's going to get it done. No person can thwart his plan. No chains are going to hold him back. No doors can shut him out. No leader can stop him. Nothing can stop the purposes of God. And God purposed to use Peter to get the gospel to keep moving forward. So verse 11 says this. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, the Jewish, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter starts to come to his senses. He wakes up and kind of realizes that this is all real. And uh, when he, he figures that out, he decides, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose now to go to a lady named Mary's house. Mary is the mother of Peter's good friend, John Mark. And when, she, when he goes to her house, what does he find that the people are doing there? The church is praying. What have we seen all through the book of Acts? The church gathered together, they prayed. When they prayed, God worked, right? When, when the people pray, the Lord works. There, this is a, something that stood out to me um, in my studies. There's a man named Thomas Watson, an old Puritan preacher. And here's what he said about Peter's experience. He said that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but prayer fetched the angel. Isn't it true that whenever we think about God's sovereignty and his purposes and his plans, don't we sometimes think this question, if God's got a purpose in the end and he's just going to kind of accomplish his will, then why should I pray? What do my prayers matter? Here's, I'll give you the short answer and we're going to come back to it again in the end. But God not only orchestrates the ends, right? He not only purposes the ends, he also purposes the means, he will accomplish his purposes, and he will utilize certain ways to get that done. And that's what's going on here. God had a purpose. He worked with the church's prayers to accomplish that purpose. So the church is gathered at Mary's house. They are praying for Peter. Look at verse 13 through 15. It says, when, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And then they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. All right, so to me, this is kind of funny. Anybody else pick up on this? It's just kind of funny because the girl is so excited that Peter's there that she leaves him at the gate. 
You know, he's just waiting. She runs in. And not only that, but when she runs in and she tells the church who has been earnestly praying that Peter's here, they don't even believe her. Like, so little, little note there. Like, obviously, we must be able to pray earnestly and still kind of have the whole, like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief thing going on. I think sometimes we idealize the early church to think that they prayed with perfect faith and they never doubted, and the Lord worked these wonders because their faith was so strong. Look, at least in this situation, we see they prayed earnestly, and yet they didn't believe fully that God was going to answer. You know what I mean? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what's going on here, even with these people. Um, But they tell Rhoda, like, no, you know, it's not Peter, it's his angel. And I just think about this girl like responding to the people saying, what? It's his angel. Like, why would an angel need to knock on the door? Angel just, they can just appear where they want, you know? And nevertheless, Peter was knocking. It actually says in verse 16 that Peter continued knocking. Hello, guys, right? And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed, right? So Peter knocking away. Come on, guys, let me in. And I heard a pastor say this one time to me and it was just funny and, you know, I'll share it with you. The pastor said this. He said, Peter had an easier time getting out of prison than he did getting into the church meeting. Isn't that funny? Let's, let's not repeat that problem here at UBC, you know. Let's not make it that complicated. But it says in verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, right? So again, Peter's like, I'm glad you guys are excited, but I'm a fugitive, so can we keep it down? Let's not wake up the neighbors. You know, Herod and, and these soldiers are going to be on the hunt for me pretty soon, so shh, right? So he quiets them down. He begins to tell them what happened. It says in verse 17 that he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. So we see Peter didn't really plan on staying with them that long. He didn't want to put them in harm's way as... Herod's soldiers were going to start trying to hunt him down. So he gets ready to head out. But before he does, he says, okay, I'm going to tell you what just what happened. And now I want you to pass it on to James and the other guys. Which, by the way, when we talk about James right here, um, we don't need to be confused about which James this is. Because we know this is not James of the son of Zebedee. This is not the James of Peter, James, and John. Because we, like we read earlier, Herod had already put him to death. So this is a different James, and what we're going to find out in the next few chapters of the book of Acts is that this is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not one of the original apostles. In fact, he didn't even believe his brother was the Messiah at first, Um, but eventually he did believe and became a leader in the church of, of Jesus Christ. He became a leader in the early church, and so that's all going to play out, especially as we get to Acts chapter 15. So uh, get ready for that, but Peter tells him what happened, and he tells him what to do next, and then he leaves. And then verse 18 tells us what comes next. It says in verse 18 that when the day came, um, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I imagine that's correct. No little disturbance is probably an understatement, right? Here he is. He's escaped from prison again after having four squads around him. Like, okay, I can imagine that Herod was upset. And it says in verse 19 that after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, people debate a little bit about who it is that went down to Caesarea. Some people think Peter. Some people think it's talking about Herod. 
based off the context of the scripture and also the historical writings surrounding uh, Agrippa. I think it's talking about Agrippa because of what's shared here in the next verses. So look what happens in verse 20. It says, now Herod Agrippa was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. All right, so Tyre and Sidon are cities north of Jerusalem, about 100 miles north where modern-day Lebanon, uh, Lebanon exists. Herod Agrippa uh, had some tension with these people, and so they come, and they're trying to work it out, and we find out why in verse 20, and it says, they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, which, by the way, is the coolest name in the whole New Testament, all right? If I ever have a dog, I'm naming him Blastus, all right? Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Why? Because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, remember, we're in a season where a famine is starting to come in. And Herod controlled the region of Galilee and the area around Jerusalem. And that's where the majority of the food was produced. And so these people up in a region far north, they didn't want to get on Agrippa's bad side because they depended on him for food. So look what they do, coming to verse 21. It says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. So what do we have going on here, man? The people of Tyre and Sidon, they are laying the flattery on thick. right? They are going to get on this guy's good side. You're a God, they say. And here's the things, that, here's where it gets crazy. Look at verse 23. Immediately, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That'll get your attention, won't it? I mean, it's so graphic and descriptive that sometimes we're like, was this really real? Like, what happened here? Well, here's what's interesting. Again, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian kept records of various things that went on in the Jewish world, including the death of King Agrippa I. And in uh, Josephus's writings, he talks about a day that led up to Herod Agrippa's death where he came to Caesarea for a festival where he was supposed to honor Caesar. And here's what he writes about the, the events of that day. He says that he, Herod Agrippa, put on a garment made holy of silver, Remember verse 22 said he put on his royal robes and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out one from one place and another from another though not for his good that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. And upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Josephus goes on to write, and a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a, almost, in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. And when he said this, his pain was become violent. And accordingly, he was carried into the palace 
And the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being, 50, being in the 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. Now guys, that was written by a non-Christian, by a Jewish historian. And yet, see how closely it aligns with the narrative of Scripture? People who study this type of thing, they'll say that it's very likely that some sort of a tapeworm or worms really were working in the king's belly and essentially were eating him from the inside out. So the king was trying to be God and kill God's people, and yet God killed the king. Why? Because no thing, nothing, no man, no person, not even a king, can stop the purposes of God. Now that's quite a story about Agrippa. And I'm sure that it would make all the news headlines and the social media posts of our day if it was happening now, which helps us understand what verse 24 says. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I bet it did. I bet it went forward. I bet the message about God and the notoriety of the way he was working in and among the Christians and on their behalf, I bet it went forward similar to the way it went forward after Ananias and Sapphira died. And it says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, right, taking that offering, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And we're going to get into the significance of verse 25 and the person of John Mark later in the book of Acts in our future studies. But verse 24 is the main point of this chapter, and it really is the main point of the whole book of Acts. God purposed for his message to go out to the ends of the earth. God purposed for his message and his witnesses to multiply, and nothing can stop the purposes of God. Nothing. No chains are going to hold him back. No prison guards are going to keep them from advancing. Kings and rulers cannot shut down the purposes of God. Why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail because the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to build his church. Nothing can stop the purposes of God. So with that big idea in mind, let me give you two takeaways. First one, for any unbeliever in the room today, somebody who you're not sure if you're a Christian or you would just flat out identify, you would just say, I am not a Christian. I know it. Here's the first thing. You must recognize that there is only one God and you are not him. You must recognize this was, a, this was Agrippa's problem. He was trying to receive glory as God, you know. I don't know if you caught it, but there were actually two times that the angel of the Lord struck someone in this text. The angel of the Lord struck Peter up and spared his life. And the angel of the Lord struck Agrippa down and ended his life. What was the difference between Peter and Agrippa? Here's the difference. Agrippa did not give glory to God. So you have to ask yourself, have you had a moment in your heart where God has been striking at your heart? He is getting your attention. And have you responded by giving him all glory and honor and bowing the knee of your heart to him as the one true God? Or are you still trying to run your own life and be your own king of your own little kingdom? Because I want you to hear this. No matter, what do we learn from Agrippa? No matter what status you achieve, no matter how much influence you have, no matter how much power you can wield, no matter what position you hold, every knee will bow. 
And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? For the glory of God the Father. He will be glorified. And we will recognize, every one of us in this room will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Peter came to that point where he did glorify God and he recognized Jesus as Lord. You are the Christ, he says. You are the one. He recognized Jesus as Lord. Have you come to that point, like Peter, where you recognize Jesus as Lord? When you come to that point, I want to tell you, uh, the Lord Jesus, King Jesus, is the King who will set you free. He will set you free. Like Peter, he will open your eyes to spiritual things. The chains of sin will be released. New doors will be opened for you. God will lead you into a new life and a new family in the church. And you too will be able to say like Peter said in our text, I am now sure that the Lord has rescued me. So if you're here today and you're, you're stuck, you are struggling, you are bound to sins of your past or shame that you carry around or you've got addictions or you are prideful and arrogant trying to run your own life but it's not going well, and you know, like, you need something else. I'm telling you, give your life to Jesus. Bow the knee of your heart to Jesus. He is the king who will set you free, and you will know that you have been rescued by the Lord. You say, how do I do it? What do you mean, bow the knee of my heart to Jesus? Here's what I mean. Humble yourself and admit that you're a sinner. Believe that your sin should result in your condemnation and your death but believe that Jesus Christ took your death and condemnation on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago and that God raised him from the dead three days later, overcoming sin and death on your behalf and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you are not and you will be saved. You will be rescued. So acknowledge, unbeliever in this room, acknowledge that there is one God, one Lord, and you are not him. Trust in Jesus. Now for the believers in this room, Here's our action step. Here's our takeaway, our application from this passage. Church family, let's learn to trust God's sovereignty in the way we rest and in the way we pray. Trust God's sovereignty in the way that we rest and the way we pray. Guys, Peter could rest the night before his trial and likely execution. He could rest. Why? Because he was resolved to trust in his sovereign Lord. So I have to ask you today, How's, how's your rest going? How's your rest going? What's your, do you find yourself in a spot of worry and anxiety and fear and, and rest is the opposite of what you have? How's your rest going? Here's the deeper question. How's your trust going? Really, worry and anxiety and unrest and those types of things that really boil out <clears throat> So many times they are attached to a disconnect with trust in God. Because here's the thing that we learn about God. We have, you can read the Bible from start to finish and you know that our God has determined the end from the beginning. He is working it all out for his purposes so he, his purposes cannot be stopped, but here's what I want to share with you today. His purposes are not only inevitable. For the Christian, his purposes are good. 
He doesn't just rule. He loves. And he loves you. And because he both is sovereign and is loving toward you, you can trust him. No matter what is going on in your life, even if you don't understand it, even if you hate it, even if you wish it could change, whatever it may be, Peter was bound in prison. He was able to sleep because he trusted in his sovereign God. So trust that his purposes are good. So there's a lesson learned for us here about trust and rest. Church family, there's also a lesson learned for us in this text about prayer. Like I said earlier, people often ask, well, if God's got his purposes and it's all going to work out the way he wants it in the end, then why should I even pray? What's the point? And I just want to say, like, if you've asked that question or maybe you're even asking it today, I think it's a reasonable question. I've asked it. A lot of people ask it. And I think it deserves an answer. And here's the answer. It's because in his sovereignty, God not only ordains the ends, but also the means. He ordains the ends, but also the means. Think about a plant. God, God makes a plant grow. But the same God who makes the plant grow also ordained the system of planting and watering and pruning and how that all works. I don't know how photosynthesis works anymore. Maybe you all can figure it out like a scientist. I don't know. But it's similar with God. We may not know how it all works. Nevertheless, there's a manner by which God works with his people to accomplish his will. And when it comes to prayer, God not only ordains the ends of his purposes, but also the means of prayer for his people. So we pray. And I want you to catch this in our text. Like, they prayed and Peter was freed from prison. But a few verses earlier, James was arrested by Herod and killed by the sword. And I got to believe that the early church probably also prayed on James's behalf. And when James died, it's reasonable to think that some of them were saying, well, why didn't God answer our prayer? And I think the answer is that God actually did answer the prayer. He just answered with a no. See, God is God. He has the right to answer however he wants. Yes, no, wait. He is God. We are not. See, some people think that the purpose of prayer is to get God to do our will. And they start to treat prayer as if, like, if we just say it and claim it and believe it enough, then God's got to do it. And if we just have enough faith to claim it, then God's got to perform on our behalf. Guys, we have to avoid that poor theology and that poor teaching because, let me say it this way, God is not a slave to mankind's wishes and wants. Sometimes we'll ask for things according to his will, and he'll say yes. Other times we'll ask for things according to his will, and he'll say no. Why? Because he's God, and we are not, and his ways are higher than our ways. The purpose of prayer is not to align God to our will. The purpose of prayer is to align us to his will. So God ordains both the ends and the means, and nothing can stop his purposes so pray, trust God's sovereignty, and rest. Lord, we stop right now to pray. And I want to specifically pray right now in this moment for anybody in this room who is really wrestling with a lack of peace and having a very difficult time 
with that particular struggle in their life. Oh Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them in, in some wonderful way that you would work in their life, reveal to them that you love them and that you work for their good even in the midst of the struggles. And I pray, Lord, that somehow in some mighty way working through your Holy Spirit that you would grant them something similar as you did to Peter to let them rest even with chains and threats and enemies all around. Lord, I pray also right now for people uh, who may be here today who have not yet bowed the knee of their heart and trusted you as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would move them, really use the warning of Agrippa to move them to repent, believe in Christ, and give all glory to you. Lord, I pray that um, you would keep us from the idol of trying to manage our own little kingdoms and be our own kings in this life, but that we would recognize you, our God, as king. And Father, I pray that we would worship you as such. Lord, you are faithful over and over again. You have proven yourself over and over. And so now, Lord, I pray that for those of us who you have given ears to hear, and eyes to see, Lord, I pray that we would honor you as God and trust you and believe that you indeed will keep your promise to work everything out for our good. We trust in Jesus' name. Amen.